Chapter 6. Anybody know what this might be? Yeah, sweet. Um, so, if you know, that's what bread is made out of and stuff like that. And basically, what you do is you take these little grains off here and then you grind those up and it turns it into a powder, and that's what you get uh, your meal from. And then you turn that into bread or any other thing. And Nowadays, it's all done with big machinery and, you know, that just does just like whole fields at a time and, and everything. Uh, at the time of Jesus, there was probably some things, uh, different, different tools that they would use to be a little more efficient. Because if you try to do this by hand, it would take you forever. I actually watched a video of somebody trying to do it by hand to see how long it would take to make a loaf, get enough grain for a loaf of bread. And it was a long time. Um, I'd just go to Kroger and get a loaf of bread. But so when we talk about... This passage today, I want you to keep this in mind of, of what we're working with. And I'm not going to eat this because I got it from Hobby Lobby and who knows what they sprayed on it to make it look good <laughs> for a really long time. Um, I, I tried to find, I did drive by some fields yesterday that I thought I could have snagged some from, but, you know, not sure that would have gone over so well. Because today, if we were to go walk in somebody's field and start picking some stuff off of there, if they saw you, they might not be very happy with you. Uh, but in, in the Old Testament, God gave specific instructions that allowed for this. In, in Leviticus 19, he tells people that the margins of their field, out on the edges, they're supposed to not reap. They're not supposed to be terribly efficient in their reaping, and they're supposed to leave that for the poor and the immigrants that can walk through. You're not allowed to like catch a basket full, but you can go through and get enough for what you need. This is really important in the book of Ruth you'll see that, that uh, she was allowed to glean on the edge, and Boaz actually said, no, leave some for her. So you're not supposed to pass over your field a second time to get all, just kind of like get everything out of it you can. This is a built-in way to care for people who are poor. So keep all of that in mind as we, as we look through uh, Luke chapter 6 today. We're going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read a, a few different sections as we go along today. So let's read the first five verses here of Luke chapter 6. Now it came about that on a certain Sabbath he was passing through some grain fields, and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone. And gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was this day that was instituted in, in the Old Testament law. It was Sabbath, about the same word as seventh. It was the seventh day of their week, what we would call Saturday. And it was to be a day of rest. The scripture is very clear that you should do no work. It's in the Ten Commandments. You know, this is remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. We see it in creation. How after six days of creation, God stopped His work on that seventh day. And so there were these restrictions of work, and many times this is when people would gather in the synagogue to hear teaching. So when He's confronted with breaking the Sabbath, He goes back to Scripture. 
He, and he pulls this example of David, and this is from 1 Samuel 21, if you want to go back and read it. So he, he talks about this consecrated bread. And what this bread was is that in, in God's law, he said there should be this loaf of bread before him at all times. It was called the showbread or the bread of the presence. It should always be before him. Now, obviously, God doesn't eat the bread. That's not really the point. But like the other sacrifices, after this bread was used in the, in the worship of God, it would have been taken off and another one had been put there. And then that bread was for the priest to eat much of the same way the animal sacrifices were. Some of it was to be used as how the priests were provided for. And so only the priests were allowed to have this. But here we see in this example from 1 Samuel 21 that Jesus refers to that David took this bread and he ate it. So we see here that what is apparently an a breaking of the, of the rules what looks to be a breaking of the rules is done by David and it's in Scripture. And so the Pharisees had to decide how they were going to interpret this and then how they would look at Jesus with this. And the principle that we see is that ritual observances have to give way to moral duties. We can't let the rituals get in the way of what is the right thing to do. And then he, at the, right after this, we have where he says, he was saying to them, he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title of Himself. He uses it. It's almost exclusively used by Jesus in the New Testament. It's how He refers to Himself most often. And He was saying, oh, if you look at the same passage over in Mark chapter 2, He adds another saying here, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So here's Jesus who is fully God and fully man. The Sabbath was made by God for man. So in a way, Jesus is both the creator and the beneficiary of the Sabbath. And he says, and he's the only one that has authority over and can offer teaching on the correct interpretation of the Sabbath. Only Jesus could make such a claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So let's keep moving here through verse 6. We'll come back to the idea of the Sabbath because the second story is also related to that. So let's start reading at verse 6. And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Rise up and come forward. And he rose and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So here we have this miraculous healing that takes place on the Sabbath day. And these stories uh, in all the Gospels are put right there together because it provides Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath. So the word that he has here for wither, talking about the man's hand, it, it suggests that the problem with his hand was not congenital. He was not born with it, but it was more, most likely due to an injury or some type of disease that caused him to lose use of his hand, and so it atrophied or, or something like that. We just know that it was withered. And when Jesus looks around and he sees these scribes and Pharisees watching him, he knew what they were thinking. 
their motives against him were obvious. They didn't like what he was doing. They knew it was a threat. So when Jesus decides that he's going to do this miracle, that he's going to heal this man, he tells the man to come forward. Now, this is different than what we saw in the past where he healed somebody and says, don't tell anybody. It's not the right time. But he tells this man to come forward. It would be the same as me saying, I want you to come stand right here in the middle of this room. I don't want there to be any chance that there could be a deception or an illusion or anything like that. He's going to do the miracle, and he's going to do it in such a way that there can be no dispute of what happens. So he tells the man to come forward. And Jesus asked this question. Jesus, the questions that Jesus asks are always the best because he just cuts right to the center of the issue. He says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? So he's asking in some ways, is, is it possible to break the Sabbath and still be innocent? Now, there were exceptions of when you could do work on the Sabbath. And one of them was that the work of the priest, because obviously the priest had to keep doing their work, and that would occur on the Sabbath as it would on other days. So obviously they were exempted. And there was another exemption that allowed a person to save the life of a person or an animal. To where if you did that, it was a life or death situation, and you did work at that time to save that life, that was permitted. You weren't, you weren't guilty of doing anything wrong. So when Jesus asked this question, he's couching it in a term that they already know, this rule that they already understand. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or destroy it? So here Jesus reveals the true conflict. His purpose is to save. The purpose of the Pharisees, which we'll find out later, is to kill Jesus. That's what they're there for. So he's putting a point on this question. Is the work that I'm doing allowed or is the work that you're doing allowed? And what gets me is that if these exceptions that we've talked about are made, how could a miraculous healing that only God could do be breaking the Sabbath? That blows my mind that this, what would be clearly an act of God, they're they're saying, well, I wonder if he's going to heal somebody today. Hosea 6.6 says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is more concerned with the heart than the rules and the rituals. Don't take that too far, though. I'll come back to that. Jesus, we we see over in Mark's gospel, you know, it it says here in Luke that he looked at them. Mark's gospel says that he was angered and that he was grieved by them. He was grieved over their spirit of criticism, their obsession over correctness, and they're trying to exert control over the Son of God. We're trying to exert control over God Himself. And what gets me is that they expected, they acknowledged, and even witnessed His ability to heal. You know, if I saw somebody perform a miraculous healing, I would pay a lot more attention to what was going on with there. I wouldn't just go, all right, we need to kill this guy. You know, no matter what the situation was, I would at least examine that situation a little more closely than just immediately setting out to do what I wanted to do to begin with. 
And in both these cases, both in the cases of the grain and in the case of this healing, the Pharisees were intentionally spying on him, trying to discredit him. They were seeking to find error. And if anything, this should be a warning to us when we seek to find error in other people. There's a difference between loving correction and intentionally seeking out to cut someone. So here we have in verse 10, this miraculous healing occurs. He just says, stretch out your hand, and he does it. And the word here is that it's a complete restoration to its former state. It wasn't a half measure. It was all the way. It was complete healing. And in verse 11, but they themselves were filled with rage. And if you look at that word, it's almost to the point of insanity. They were so angry, they almost couldn't control themselves. After witnessing a miracle, they're so angry, they almost can't control themselves. And they, and they say, and they discuss together what they might do to Jesus, which seems a little innocuous. Um, Mark 3 states it a little more bluntly. They're saying, how, we can, how can we destroy him? How can we destroy him? So it brings up a question that, that if you've been raised in the church, I think we've, we've probably, or you've probably struggled with or at least thought about uh, some over your lifetime, is that how should Christians look at the Sabbath? You know, it was very clear in the Old Testament that this was a day of rest. Um, so how should we observe it? Or should we observe it? Well, remember that the Sabbath was part of the law. And that the purpose of the law was to reveal sin and to point people to Jesus. That was its function. And in Colossians chapter 2, uh, Paul writes, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Jesus. The reality of it belongs to Jesus. Now, my stepdad, who passed away a few years ago, over his adult life was a model maker. You know, like the cars, airplanes, you buy the kit at the craft store and you get the glue and the paint and the decals. He was excellent at it. I mean, he was just, he was a craftsman when it came to putting these models together. And he would even go to the point of where he didn't just have what was in the kit. He would go to these specialty stores and buy extra parts like spark plug wires and, you know, put them on. And so these were like little masterpieces of classic cars, new cars, you know, military aircraft, things like that. But none of us misunderstood that little car to be a real car. It was fun to put together. He enjoyed it. I didn't have the patience for it at all. I tried a couple of times, and they fell apart because I'm just not very patient. Because um, you have to paint and let it dry and then glue it and let it dry, and I just don't have the time for that. So, um, But he did. He was an incredibly patient person when it came to this. But that car, as awesome as it was, was not a real car. You could put it on a shelf, and you could look at it. You might learn something about automotives through that car. But it's not a real car. That is how these things in the Old Testament are. They're shadows. They're models of the reality that is to come. And the reality that came in Jesus. The sacrificial lambs were only a model of Jesus. The once and for all sacrifice. The temple 
was only a model of the real temple that's in heaven. All these things, the high priests, were only a model of Jesus who is our high priest. Hebrews 3 and 4, you know, we went through Hebrews a while back, and it keeps talking about how Jesus is superior to the law. Jesus is superior to Moses. And he goes through and makes this great case of that. And it teaches that Jesus is the believer's Sabbath rest. The Sabbath day wasn't moved to Sunday, as some people teach. It ended at the cross with the law being perfectly fulfilled. Yes, the early Christians began worshiping on Sunday because that was the Lord's day, the day that He rose from the grave. It was the first day of the week. We see that clearly in Scripture that they began to worship on the first day of the week. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that the rules that apply to the Sabbath in the Old Testament were moved to Sunday. It ended at the cross with the rest of the law being fulfilled by Jesus. But within, even within that, it's really a matter of conscience. If you're somebody who's been raised that Sunday is a day that we're supposed to rest and you know that you have these things, Romans 14 addresses this. And it says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Now this is not strictly referring to just the Sabbath. It's referring to a lot of the other festivals that they would have. And it's like, well, should we observe those or should we not? And so Paul says here in Romans that it's a matter of conscience and that we can't be overly um, critical of those who look at those days differently. And that whether you have a feast on that day or whether you fast on that day, if you're doing it to the Lord and it's not contrary to other things, then that's what you should do. You should give thanks to God for it when you eat. You should give thanks to God when you fast. Because even in the Old Testament and all the way through what we're going to look at for the rest of our time, God has always been more concerned with the heart than with following rules. There are times in the Old Testament where he says, I don't, your, your worship is noise to me because you've abandoned the true things, true worship, true righteousness, true justice. You've abandoned all those things. And even Jesus says, you know, you tithe off of your mints and herbs, but you don't do the other things that are more important, that really reflect your heart, where your heart should be. So we have this, that God is always concerned with the heart more than the rules that we've, that we've created. So let's keep reading through verse, starting at verse 12. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, who he also named as apostles, Simon, who, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. 
So here we have this listing of the 12 men that he called to be these apostles. There was a larger group of disciples that had already started following Jesus, but from that larger group, he calls these 12 guys. But we see that before he does that, he has an intense time of prayer before this major decision and for this major action. And you know, as we've mentioned before, Luke always pays special attention to when Jesus prays, and he makes a note of it. So here we have this time where he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And that in itself should be instructive to us. If the Son of God needs to spend that type of time with his Father, um, all of us should be spending significant time in prayer, especially before something major in our life. So, each, I, I, you know, several of these people, we could probably spend an hour talking about the different things that God does in their life. But, you know, I think we're, we've talked about Peter a pretty good bit, and we know about some of the others. I want to point out another per, uh, one particular person and just talk about it for a second. We have in verse 15, he talks about Simon, who was called the zealot. You know, all right, well. I think we have some idea of what, uh, what zealous means, that somebody's very passionate about something, usually uh, religious, maybe a sports team. They're a zealot for the Georgia Dogs or something like that. Uh, but this is, this is talking about a specific group here. Now, in, there were three major groups of Jewish philosophy. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which we're pretty familiar with. Uh, and then there was another group that we really don't see in Scripture too much is uh, the Essenes. And Josephus, who is a Jewish historian that writes a lot about this period, I think we have a volume of his work back in the library, um, he notes a fourth group called the Zealots. Now, their beliefs were generally in line with the Pharisees, but they had an intense view on liberty. And what I mean by that, that they thought they should have no other ruler but God. That, and so that meant that the, the Roman rule over them was just... It was just under their skin. They couldn't deal with it. It was too much. It was, they viewed that this was in too much of a conflict with, with what God wanted for them. So they had this intense view of liberty, or on liberty. And they were really revolutionaries. Um, their tactics were often violent, and, and some called them the world's earliest terrorist because of their approach. They didn't come out as like an army against an army. It was more like guerrilla warfare where they would sneak up on people and do these types of things. And, and, and after, you know, a few decades after the events that we're talking about now, the Zealots led a rebellion when Rome introduced imperial cult worship or the worship of Caesars. So they led this rebellion, and ultimately Rome came and crushed the rebellion, and then this led to the temple being destroyed in AD 70. So... All those kind of things play together. So we have Simon, who was a member of this group, the Zealots. And I'm not saying that he attacked people or killed people or anything like that. I'm saying that he was associated with this group. So we have Simon, the Zealot, who, by all intents and purposes, hates Rome, hates their leadership. But then we have Matthew. And as Chet talked about last week, Matthew was a tax collector for the Romans. He was a traitor, basically. And he was viewed as such. That's why the tax collectors didn't hang out with all the other Jewish people. is because they were considered traitors. Because they would not only, they're not only representing the Roman government to their own people, the Jews, but they're often cheating them out of it. They're cheating them out of their money. Because if, as Chet said last week, if the government required $5 in taxes, they would charge 10 and keep the rest for themselves. 
So they would pay the Roman government the taxes that were due. And so many of them became quite wealthy. And we see this referred to when tax collectors become believers. And he says, I'm going to pay back what I, what I took that was wrong. So you have people who are two guys who are on the opposite end of the Jewish political spectrum. One that hates Rome so bad that he's part of a group that's terrorizing people. And you have another one who's loyal enough to Rome to collect taxes for them and to cheat their own people. God calls both of them. He calls both of them. So I think there's probably some room for like Democrats and Republicans and independents to be within the same church. Because last I checked, we're not making a revolution or anything. Both of these people are called to serve Jesus, and they serve together. They probably had some interesting discussions late night around the campfire about politics, as some of us do sometimes. But they were both called by Jesus. And then the other person that probably we're most familiar with here is Judas Iscariot. Did you hate to be the other guy, Judas? It's like, no, not me. It was him. Um, well, if you look at other lists of the apostles in Scripture, you'll see that some of the names are a little bit different. But as we already see here, some people have more than one name. and uh, So don't let that throw you off. But here we have a Judas Iscariot, who obviously Luke is writing this after these events has occurred, so he, he notes that Judas would become a traitor. But, you know, it's one of those things we think about sometimes. Well, did Jesus know? Did, you know, did he know that Judas was going to betray him and all this? Well, here's what I'll say. The father knew that Judas was a traitor and was going to betray him. And Jesus was perfectly in his father's will when he made these choices. Jesus didn't make a mistake by choosing Judas. The betrayal was not a surprise to God. He knew it was coming. Let's read these last couple of verses here, starting at verse 17. And he descended with them and stood on a level place, and there was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed with their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Just a beautiful picture as Luke is setting the scene for this discourse that we're going to look at next week. So he paints this picture of as the people preparing to hear Jesus' message. And as it relates to what we've talked about already, I think part of Jesus' message would be summed up in, in Matthew 11, verse 28, when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They had this weight of the law on them. It was more than anyone could carry apart from Jesus. No one made a claim in any truthfulness that they had fulfilled the law, that they had never sinned. But Jesus could. And so what Jesus is asking them is that 
take this yoke of sin, take this yoke of the law and set it to the side and pick up my yoke. Because my yoke is so much better. We see that described all through Hebrews, all through Scripture, that the yoke of Christ is so much better than the Old Testament, the law that we had, that they had on them. It's so much better than trying to please God with our own actions. Dallas Willard has this quote that I think applies. It says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. You see the difference there? Grace doesn't mean that that we don't put forth effort. It doesn't mean that we don't take action. But what it means is that those actions aren't what earn us favor with God. It's the attitude that we cannot look at ourselves, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, it'll make God happy with me. That it will earn my salvation. That's the opposite of grace. Grace is that gift that's given that we can't earn. It's there for us. All we have to do is accept it. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So as we look back through all these things on the Sabbath and the Pharisees trying to keep people by the rules, thinking at least maybe what they may have said outwardly, well, this is how we please God. These are the things that we have to do to make God happy with us. When they've completely missed the Son of God, the Son of Man in their presence, doing the work of God, they're more concerned about the rules. And, and, and just when I say the rules, there's the law, and then they created all these other rules to be an even bigger buffer around the law to where they got so obsessed with what the rules were, they missed what the heart of it was. They missed God in the middle of it. So when God is working in their midst, they couldn't even see it. So this attitude that we have to have to where we work, we have effort, we have action, not because we think that's what it takes, but is in response to the grace that's already been given to us. God has always been more concerned with the heart than following the rules. We don't just fragrantly break the rules because we're under grace. Scripture pretty clear about that one too. But we should be motivated out of the love that God has for us to do the things that He asked of us, to not offend Him, to not grieve the Spirit. So as we go into our open time, think on those things. Think of how God, how Jesus was working in these instances how he was doing things that was not expected of the Messiah. But he was doing exactly what his father wanted him to do. Whether it was taking care of his guys and eating on the Sabbath, or healing a man, or even choosing people who disagreed with each other and one who would betray him. He was perfectly in the Father's will when he did each of those things. And that's why the message that he gives following up is so powerful. It teaches us how we're supposed to be.
So as we go into this open time, remember the work of Jesus. Remember his dying on the cross for us, his body being broken for us as we break the bread, his blood that was spilled for us as we remember through the cup. All for us, all for grace, all because of his great love for us.